have you seen the old sitcom, Who's the Boss? Tony Danza, do you remember this series? 1984 to, to 1992. The series centered around Angela. She was uh, an advertising executive and her son, Jonathan. Tony, her live-in housekeeper, and his daughter, Samantha, and Mona, Angela's mother. And at one point throughout the, the sitcom, each character attempted to control the household affairs. Thus, the sitcom's title, Who's the Boss? Well, as we continue our series here tonight in Amos chapter 7, Amos addresses the very same question. Who's the boss? Who's the ultimate authority? In the first nine verses, and we didn't take the time to read these verses. I'm just going to summarize them for you. Uh, Amos has three visions that he he prophesies, that he then proclaims. The first vision in the first three verses uh, is a, a, a vision of swarming locusts. The second, of a consuming fire. And both of the, these two, they're describing these terrifying, catastrophic consequences of Israel's behavior, of their sin. These are events that God would bring upon Israel. Uh, locusts, a swarm of locusts, this was a terrifying plague in this part of the world, especially back during these days. The people despaired, and they would hear of these locust swarms coming, and basically a locust swarm would come in and just eat everything. And so what followed a locust swarm was always suffering and death by famine. The second vision was a sweeping inferno that would just, like what happened in Maui, just this wildfire that would just fly through and just completely decimate uh, uh, the, the towns and cities in uh, Israel. In both cases, distraught by the vision, Amos begs God not to. If you look at verse 3 and verse number 6, he begs God, God, don't do this. You will completely decimate your people. Please do not do this. And in both cases, it tells us that the Lord re- relents. God says, okay, I won't. The third vision, this is verses uh, 7, 8, and 9, was a vision of a plumb line. A plumb line. You know what a plumb line is, right? A, a, a cord with a weight, a lead weight at the bottom of it. It's basically, a, uh, the idea here is that the Lord held in his hand this plumb line um, to test Israel. A plumb line is used to, to see if a wall is perpendicular, if it's, if it's straight, uh, standing up uh, and down, that it hasn't settled and tilted. And so the idea here is that like a wall that was once sturdy and straight, built true to plumb, if you will, Israel's wall, Israel was now crooked. It was out of line. It was in disrepair. Uh, Both its institutions, religiously and politically, they had failed the test and they would have to come down like a wall that is out of plumb. You have to take the thing down. Um, This is what God is saying. He would bring the nation down and he would not relent. Well, Amos has these vision, and he begins to proclaim them throughout the land, and it's heard, overheard by Amaziah, the priest, the high priest of Bethel. 
Now, Bethel was one of the, the two state sanctuaries. It was established by Jeroboam's father, Jeroboam I, in 931, when he broke away from Jerusalem. He established this sanctuary, this temple, with its own type, you know, basically it was an idolatrous type of worship, but it was his way of trying to give the people of Israel another place of worship. And so, uh, Amaziah was the priest, the chief priest evidently, of this temple, this sanctuary in Bethel that was called the king's, it was the, the royal sanctuary. This is where King jo- Jeroboam II, this is where he would go to worship. And so Amaziah hears these prophecies, swarming locusts, consuming fire, a wall that has to be torn down. He does not like what he's hearing. And so the tension in Amos chapter 7 is a tension we still, we still deal with today in the world at large and in our very own lives. Who's the boss? Who is the ultimate authority? Who is ultimately in charge? Is it the magistrates and government? Is it King Jeroboam? Is the ultimate authority the men of established religion like Amaziah the priest? Is the, the ultimate authority, authority the minister of God? Is the prophet Amos, is he the ultimate authority? Who's the boss? Have you ever heard one kid say to another kid, you're not the boss of me? Have you ever said it to someone, to your husband or your wife? You're not the boss of me, right? Um, Kids say that sort of thing. What do they mean by that? Don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want to do. Well, tonight I hope that we all leave here understanding with crystal clarity who's the boss of me. Who's my boss? Who's my ultimate authority? It's a question every single one of us must answer. Here's tonight's big idea. There is ultimately only one authority to whom we all answer. There's only one authority to whom every one of us, every human being, will answer. So let's just talk about it. Who's the boss? Well, is the boss the magistrates in government? So as we look at, this is number one, as we look at verses number 10 and 11, Amaziah, this idolatrous priest of Bethel, he dispatches this message to King Jeroboam, okay? He wants the king to know what Amos, this prophet, is saying, and he picks out two items from Amos's words that would be sure to get the king's attention, right? And he presents them as a direct quote from Amos. So let's go back to verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent this message to Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Amos is hatching a plot against you right here on your very doorstep. Here's what he's saying. What he, what he is saying, Amaziah says, is intolerable. He is saying Jeroboam will soon be killed and the people of Israel will be sent away into exile. Now here's what he's doing. He's charging Amos with raising a conspiracy against the king. That's really what he's doing. He's basically um, saying that he's, he's adding really his own little twist here. Have you noticed this? He says, Jeroboam will soon be killed. 
Amos never said that. The closest that, that Amos gets to this, if you go back um, earlier in the book, what you find is that Amos does prophesy, of course, Israel's exile. We've seen that over and over and over again. He did say that Jeroboam's house or family or dynasty would die by the sword. But he doesn't say that Jeroboam himself would be killed. So, I think what Amaziah is doing here is Amaziah is trying to really get the attention of the king. Why? Because he wants the king to shut Amos up. Uh, Either by, you know, exiling him, telling him to get out of Uh, out of town, get out of the country, go back to Judah, or to to excommunicate, not excommunicate, but execute him, right? Kill him. That'll shut him up. This is what they had done, kings had done with, with some of the prophets in the past. And so Amos was not engaged in any type of a, this is, all of Amos's messages, this is not a personal attack on the king. He, he's not, in fact, Amos doesn't want any of this to happen. Amos doesn't want Israel to be judged. He doesn't want them to go into exile. In fact, we've just read how uh, in these visions in the earlier part of the chapter where, where and, and Amaziah doesn't know this, Amos pleaded for God not to send the swarm of locusts. He pleaded with God, no, don't send a consuming fire. Don't do that, God. Amaziah has no idea of any of that. But he's painting Amos as this menace to the community, as this threat to the king, rather than a messenger from God. And what he's implying is that if Amos is allowed to keep up these repeated messages of catastrophe, either A, he's going to demoralize the people, or B, some guy is going to like fulfill these prophecies. There's going to be someone who will, some crazy guy or something, who will do his best to try to overthrow the king. Look, this wouldn't be the first time, it certainly wouldn't be the last time, that a king of Israel or Judah would attempt to muzzle one of God's prophets. Wouldn't be the first or the last time. Government leaders have tried throughout history to control the religious affairs, affairs of their people. And, and, you know, I think we know enough about history to, to know that. Um, Hitler eliminated those who opposed him in the church. Did you know that? He replaced them with people who were cordial to the Nazi party. The communists in the former Soviet Union, uh, including all the the nations behind the Iron Curtain, like Romania. Uh, we have a lot of Romanians, Romanians that live in the area. When we were at uh, Tennessee Temple in, in, in Chattanooga in college, we had a whole group of Romanians come to the college, like 40 of them, after the, the Iron Curtain came down. But, man, uh, you hear the stories uh, about how the government uh, and the communists tried to control what the church was teaching, what they were doing. And many of them were locked up. Many pastors were thrown in the pr- into prison. Uh, many died. Uh, the Ayatollah uh, Khomeini established Islam as the national religion in Iran. 
uh, China's oppressive regimes closed, did you know this? 7,000 churches between 2000 and 2022. This is, this is like recent. They've closed 7,000 churches. Uh, they're using today high-tech tools to make life harder on the nearly 100 million Christians living in communist China. Christians in Afghanistan have either fled overseas or went into, into deep hiding since the Taliban's take, takeover. North Korea remains the worst violator of religious freedom. Great persecution has come, and one of the largest churches uh, in the world exists in the Koreas. Overall, there are 360 million Christians living in nations with high levels of persecution or discrimination. Right now, right now, 360 million. Did you know that in the early America's history, colonists contended with government-only sanctioned religion? Did you know this? Did you know that, that Massachusetts was originally founded by Puritans and that Puritans actually uh, controlled the religion of the colony and that, that people had to sign a statement of faith in order to become a citizen of the colony, did you know this? And that they persecuted, that they were violent toward people who did not hold their religious beliefs. I mean, Roger Williams and, and John Clark, uh, these were two men who were, who were persecuted by the Puritans in Massachusetts. Uh, John Clark received, I think, 30 lashes. They would have killed both of them had the native Indians uh, not taking them in, and they were the, became the founders of Rhode Island, the state that I grew up in as a kid. These were men who were po po uh, persecuted for their religious beliefs. By who? By, by religious men. But by a government that was set up as a state-run kind of a church. And so throughout history, even in, this, in our own country, various governments have aggressively opposed God's work, but one by one, these leaders have fallen. But the scripture seems to indicate governmental persecution of God's servants will continue until Jesus comes. And so church, we shouldn't be shocked by this. We shouldn't be surprised when the enemies of Christ attempt to use the government to suppress the proclamation of the gospel and silence the voice of the church. Don't be shocked when the government, including our own, supports the enemies of Jesus Christ and the enemies of the church. Don't be shocked by that. We see that continuing to increase here in our own country. Here's what the scripture tells us to do. The scripture commands us to pray for our magistrates in government. This is Paul writing, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, first of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, and all those who are in authority. Why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see that? We are to pray for our governmental leaders. We're to pray for our president. We're to pray for our representatives and, and those in Congress. We're to pray for people, our, our, our governor, right? And those at the state level. We're to pray for the city council, our mayor, those at the, at the, in the city level. We've been commanded to pray for them. 
And so I don't think that we should gripe against them if we're not praying for them. Amen? But one thing's clear. Our governmental magistrates are not the ultimate authority. So if it's not the magistrates in government, is it then the men of religion, as we see in verses 12 and 13? Look back at verses 12 and 13, chapter 7. It says in verse 12, Then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. What's going on here? Well, Amaziah has sent a letter to the king. But, you know, back then, it was Pony Express, right? I mean, it could take two or three days from Bethel, Samaria, to get to, get to the king, to find the king, supposing that he's in Samaria, to get up there, to get a response, to get that back down. That could take two days. That could take three days. And so Amaziah is just too impatient, and he's the chief priest in Bethel. And so what does he do? Look at verse 12. He sent orders to Amos. He sends his own orders, He's not going to wait for the king. He's the high priest. Here's his orders. He says, get out of here, you prophet. Go back to the land of Judah and live your prophesying, uh, earn your, pro- by your living by your prophesying there. Don't bother us. Get out of here, right? This is what he's saying. Go home. Beat it. Get on your donkey and go back to Judah, right? Hit the trail, Jack. Don't come back no more, no more. I mean, this is what he wants Amos to do. He has no idea that Amos, he's, he's trying to do good for the people of Israel. He wants the people to hear the message and to repent and to turn back to God. He's there on a mission of mercy. He's, he's there on a mission to, to, to help save the people. <coughs> but Amaziah, he just wants him to shut up and leave. He didn't want anyone going around telling the people, if you go back, what is it, chapter, is it chapter 5, where he says, don't, this is chapter 5 and verse 5, don't, do not seek Bethel. Seek the Lord. Don't, don't go to the sanctuary in Bethel. The Amaziah didn't want that kind of preaching going around. He did not want people from being discouraged to come to his temple and to hear whatever he had to say. And so he wanted Amos to leave. Look, whenever God's servants are faithful to proclaim his word, eventually there's going to be some opposition, perhaps even persecution. Do you know that religious men have been some of the fiercest antagonizers and persecutors of the church? Religious men. I mean, it was true of Christ, right? The Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were, were the, the fiercest antagonizers of Jesus. These were the religious men of the day, the scholars, the scribes, right? These men, they studied the Old Testament. They, they tried to live out all the law of the Old Testament, and yet they became the, the greatest pain in the neck to Jesus Christ. They became the ones who actually pushed to have him crucified, right? To have him arrested and crucified. It was religious Men, Jesus said this. He said before his arrest, 
early, kind of midway through his ministry, Jesus says to them, woe to you. He's speaking to them, the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. You build tombs for the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore you are witnesses that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their monuments because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, right? Amos, I'll send them prophets, and some of them they will kill and persecute. So Jesus says, so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. They had a long history of killing the prophets of God. And that's why Jesus told his followers to expect this. And this is why once the disciples, after Jesus res uh, resurrected and ascended back into heaven, like almost immediately, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious men, started going after the apostles, right? Uh, it says in, in Acts, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name that you, filled with, uh, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. It's the same thing that Amaziah was telling Amos. Hundreds of years earlier. Shut up. Leave. Go home. We don't want to hear what you have to say. It got so bad that Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned to death, wasn't he? I mean, you think about all the events and how quickly things escalated after uh, Jesus' ascension and how quickly it became this kind of a scene in New Testament times. These were simply men of God who were proclaiming the truth. They were simply proclaiming the way of salvation. They were simply proclaiming that through faith in Jesus Christ that everyone could be saved. This is the message that Stephen had. Go back and, and read his message. I mean, it was a message of, of salvation. It was, it was an offer of grace, and yet this is, what, this is what happened. He was stoned. Jesus warned the disciples, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Matthew 24, he said, you will be hated by all nations because of my name so listen church i know that in the here and now we've had it we have it relatively easy don't we i mean sure we may suffer some opposition or persecution from family members friends co-workers people around us that that know we're a christian that that don't want to hear the gospel that that don't want to to see or hear anything from our life that points to Christ. But I mean, over, overall, we live, thank God, in a free nation where we have been able to assemble like this. And we can go out and we can evangelize still without the threat of, of a public whipping, you know, or imprisonment. But we don't know how, will, will that end in our lifetime? I, I don't know. I don't know. It certainly seems as though we're moving towards more open persecution against the church in America. But I want you to understand that persecution always has this, this good effect on the church. 
it always has a purifying effect on the church. We see that uh, throughout the, the scriptures. Uh, those disciples of Jesus who are committed to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what the threat is. I mean, remember the first time Peter and John, right, they were beaten because they were preaching the name of Jesus. What, remember what it says? It says they went home rejoicing. <laughs> hey, we were, we were, we were uh, persecuted for Jesus. They rejoiced over that. And this is exactly what Jesus has, has told us. He says this, this is Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. He said, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay? So when we face persecution, the next time, you face some opposition or persecution, here's what you do. Remember Amos. Remember, remember, this has been going on a really long time. Remember the apostles. Remember the early followers of Jesus. Tertullian said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, there's this effect that persecution has on the church, but it also has on the world. So persecution isn't a bad thing. I don't believe it's a bad thing from God's perspective, and it shouldn't be a bad thing from our perspective. Now, that said, who wants to be persecuted? Any takers? None of us want to be persecuted. Thank God we live in a free country. Let's use the freedoms while we have it to proclaim the gospel, amen? But listen, the, the magistrates in government, they're not the ultimate authority. The men of religion, established, the establishment, the, the religion, they're not the ultimate authority. So who then is it? Who's the boss? Is it then the ministers of God? Right? We have Jeroboam, we have Amaziah, and we got Amos. Which one is, who's the boss? Is it Amos then? Well, Amos knows he's not the boss. Look at verse number 14. And Amos replied, I'm not a professional prophet, and I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd, guys. Just a shepherd. I'm a sycamore fig tree caretaker is what I am. But the Lord called me away from my flock and told me, go and prophesy to my people in Israel. You see the, the contrast here? Amaziah is saying, go home. And Amos is like, I'm just here because God told me to be here. I wouldn't be here had God not told me. This is what Amos is saying. I wouldn't be here if God hadn't told me to be here. I'd be back taking care of my sheep. I'd be back there taking care of my sycamore figs, right? Amos is saying, I'm just a nobody just trying to tell everybody about a somebody. This is what, this is what Amos is doing. He knew his place. He knew his calling. He knew where, that, that it was God who had called him and brought him there. And so Amos doesn't have any kind of a Messiah complex. He doesn't have this concept like, I'm here to save you. That's, he knows he's not the Savior. He's pointing the people to the Lord. He's not claiming any self-serving authority. He's just following orders. God said, go and prophesy. So what did he do? He went and he prophesied, but he didn't do it 
under his own authority. That's something that every one of us who preach the, the gospel, who preach God's word, have to always remind ourselves of. That is not our authority. We preach on the authority of God's word. That's why we stand up here with an open Bible. We stand up here with the book. It's the word of God that holds the authority. By the way, oftentimes God chooses to use people like an Amos-type person, just an ordinary person. Here's a guy who is as ordinary as they come. I love that. I love that his calling and his message, it didn't puff him up. He stayed humble. He stayed grounded. He didn't have any great speakability. You know the greatest ability when it comes to serving God? What is it? You know it. It's availability. Amos just made himself available. God called him, and he went. You know, I think that we need more like Amos in our world today. I read this article on Friday that just came out from the Barna Group. You familiar? These, the Barna Group does um, church-wide surveys right across the country, and uh, this article that came out on Friday came across my desk. The title was, The Pastoral Succession Crisis is Only Going to Get More Complicated. Here's what the article stated. It said, as of 2022, only 16% of Protestant senior pastors are 40 years old or younger. Did you hear that? Only 16% are 40 years old or younger. Only 16%. The average age among pastors is, who wants to guess? Anybody want to guess? Nope, nope, lower. It's 52, 52. That's the average age of pastors today. And the article said, if this trend goes undressed, the church in the U.S. is going to face a real succession crisis as, as pastors die move off the scene, retire or whatever? Where are the younger men who are going to come in and fill in the ranks? Now, either God has stopped calling ministers or what could it be? Stopped answering the call, right? You see, when God has a message to deliver, he always looks for someone to deliver it like he did Amos. And what we need and what we can pray for as a church and as a people is for God to raise up and for men, young men, to hear the call of God and to answer the call, to go into, in, into the ministry. And, and maybe God would call someone, wouldn't it be awesome if some, God called someone right here from our own fellowship, from our own church. If he calls you, don't fear it, don't run from it, run to it. Do what, what the Lord calls you to do, just like Amos did. He did what God called him to do. But listen, no, uh, the ministers of God are not the ultimate authority. Who's the boss? Who's the boss? Well, I think we all know who the boss is. As you get to verses 16 and 17, Amos makes it really, really clear. He says in verse 16 to Amaziah, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 17, this is what the Lord says. Church, who's the boss? It's the Lord. It's God. He is the ultimate 
authority. Listen to the message that God had. Don't pro- uh, you say, don't prophesy against Israel. This is verse 16. Stop preaching against my people. But the Lord says this, and he goes on and he tells Amaziah what is going to happen to him and his family. So listen. The servants of God may speak to thousands, but they have no authority of their own. Institutionalized religion and their ministers may become influential, but it's only temporary, and they're not the ultimate authority. Governments and their leaders may be impressed with themselves, and they may dictate, try to dictate and control the people on on what we believe and what we preach and all that. They may try to do that, but listen, it is the Lord who sets up kings and who removes them, Daniel says. So when it comes to the authority, Amos reminds us that we must always obey God rather than man. That is what Amos is saying here. I heard what you said, Amaziah, but I'm going to obey God. I, I hear what you're telling me to get out, but I'm not going anywhere. God told me to come and to preach his word, and I intend to do that. And that is exactly what Peter and the apostles answered. We must obey God rather than than man. Amen? Church, we must obey God rather than man. We're committed to that. I'm committed to that as your pastor. To obey the Bible, to obey the word of God, to lead our church in a biblical direction doesn't matter what the government or institutionalized religion or what anybody has to say. Let's follow the word of God. Amen? Let's just be that simple about it. Remember, in the book of Samuel, God had ordered Saul to attack the Amalekites and to utterly destroy them. Remember what what Saul does, King Saul? He decides not to. At least... He did some mental gymnastics on how he could get around doing what God had told him to. And Samuel said to him, he said, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. Let let me just address something real quick then. So how should we as God's people live in the face of tyranny? Do you sense that maybe in our nation tyranny could be on the rise? Do you, do you sense that? I'm not here to, you know, get real political about this, but do you sense that? How, how, do we, how are we to live in the face of tyranny? There are Christians right now who live very obviously under tyranny. What, is there, what does the Bible say about this? And one of the examples I thought I'd just share with you tonight, and you can study this out in, in the Word yourself, but... But I think a, a passage that speaks directly to it is found in the book of Exodus and the guys' Bible study tonight. They, they um, did an overview of the book of, of Exodus. And right there in the beginning chapter, two chapters of Exodus, you remember that the Pharaoh, he feared the growing numbers of the Israelites. And so he commanded that all the, the male babies would be put to death, remember? And he told the, the Hebrew midwives that it was their job, that they were to, if, if, a, if a baby boy was born, they were to, to kill that baby. Well, Shipra and Pua, remember these two Hebrew midwives? These two women 
In the face of this tyrannical mandate, they refused to reply, and they delivered the Hebrew children, male and female. They even lied to the government officials who questioned them about it. But in doing that, they were loving God, they were loving his people, and they were taking their own lives in their own hands. They weren't, they weren't trying to be obstinate, they were simply trying to obey God. They were simply doing what God expected of them, and God approved their resistance to tyranny and their refusal to sell out God's people. And church, I think that we can learn something from that, that God approves of obedience in defiance of of tyranny. When when God has uh, given us a direct order in his word, we are to always obey his word, even if that means we are in defiance of some form of tyranny. Tyranny. Does that mean then that we should, you know, go around looking for laws that we can transgress, you know, and kind of rebel against and, oh, that's tyranny. We're, we're not, I don't, I don't believe so. But I do believe that as we faithfully and consistently and trustingly keep obeying God, doing and saying and thinking what, what he says, what he commands, that we're to do it without fear of the government, society, or anything else. Amen? God is the ultimate authority. Every authority rises and falls under the ultimate authority of God Almighty. Amen? The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is ultimately one authority, and his name is Jesus. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? I I read this earlier this week that it said during the first performance of Handel's Messiah, the King of England was so overwhelmed. He was present. He was overwhelmed at the hallelujah chorus, right? We've all heard it, uh, where it says the king of kings and the, uh, the lord of lords, right? It goes, keep, keeps him the king, and he shall reign forever and ever, right? And, and just that the crescendo builds, right? It's, the, the story goes that the king of England stood, shocking everyone because he stood, and everyone stood with him. And they asked him later, why did you stand? He stood. He said this. He said, because he was acknowledging the presence of a greater king. You see, church, tonight there is one king of kings and one lord of lords. Here's what I want you to know about him. First, his proclamations are sure. They're sure. Over and over, In the book of Amos, up to this point, how many times Amos says, the Lord says? This is the message from the Lord. Almost everything in the book of Amos, you will read before it. This is what the Lord says. Amos was simply God's mouthpiece. So these are the Lord's proclamations, and what the Lord has spoken will come to pass, and it did come to pass. We have to remind ourselves of that, church, that what the Lord has said will come to pass. Jesus is coming again. It will 
come to pass. We will stand before him. It will come to pass. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. It will come to pass. Are we ready for that day? Ezekiel 12, 25, for I am the Lord. If I said it, it will happen. Amen? Second, the Lord's purposes will stand. Amaziah can try to run Amos out of town, but the Lord intends to accomplish what will be accomplished without fail. No king, no emperor, no president, no governor, no ruler, no religion, no matter how powerful it can be, can resist the purpose of the king of kings. Proverbs 19.21 says, you can make your plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. I love that verse. Make your plans, but God's purpose will prevail. So whatever the Lord intends to accomplish will be accomplished. He's the Lord. He reigns. Third, the Lord's plans will succeed. No earthly power can stem the tide of God's plan. Psalm 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart, from generation to generation. And in Isaiah it says, God says, As I have planned, it will be as I have decided. That's awesome. God's plans will succeed. And then his power is supreme. I'm continually amazed at the power of the forces of nature, uh, the hurricanes as of late, you know, you see the power of wind, right? A tornado. Amazing power. Uh, did you see what's happened in Libya? I mean, you look at the power of rushing water and what it can do. It's, it's devastating. It's, it's amazing. The power of fire we saw in Maui, just how quickly fire can, can just consume. I'm amazed at the power of, that, that, that we find in nature. And what it reminds us of is the God behind nature, the God who created nature. And what I want to just simply remind us tonight is that while we see the, his power all written all across this world and, and, and throughout the universe, our God, listen, for him, nothing is impossible. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever, whatever struggle you're dealing with, listen, nothing is impossible for God Israel saw it all firsthand. I was thinking about this earlier, how this nation that Amos was, was proclaiming, prophesying to, man, their ancestors, they'd seen the 10 plagues in Egypt. They had, they had record of it. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw the Egyptian army swallowed up. They saw water gushing from a rock. They, they saw manna rain for he, from heaven for 40 years. They saw what God did. They saw the walls of Jericho tumble down over and over again. God showed his mighty hand to these very people, to their ancestors. They had record of it. And yet in Amos' day, they had forgotten. And so God would use his power to do what? To help them remember. To send them into exile. Why? Because they had forgotten him. Because they had new gods. Because they, they, they had become a corrupt nation. A nation of injustice. A nation of wickedness. Job 24, 22 says, God drags away the mighty by his power. When he rises up, they have no assurance of life. Listen, 
what God says he, he can do. He he's, has the power to accomplish it, and that's exactly what we see in the book of Amos. And so who's the boss? Well, God is the boss. He's the ultimate authority. So here's the question. Who's your boss? Who's your boss? Are you going to bow, surrender yourself to the authority of God in your life? Are you going to bow and surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ? Here's your next steps tonight. Number one, I believe the first step would be to confess him. One day every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I believe the first step is to confess that, to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and to then confess that with your tongue in faith, believing on him. As I look around the room, we're church family. Have you confessed him? Have you confessed him? Have you believed on him? Just because we're church family, still the question comes out, it rings out, Have we confessed him? Do we believe on him? I think that's step number one. Secondly, it's to surrender to him, right? If he's Lord, then we're to bow before him. We're to surrender to him. So step number two is I will surrender all I am, all I have, all I ever hope to be fully and completely to him. Church, have we done this? Have we surrendered completely to him? Maybe it did a long time ago. Maybe at some camp or some meeting somewhere. But are we living today, practically speaking, fully surrendered to God? Is he on the throne of our life? Or are we trying to live our life like we're the king, like we're the boss? Would we surrender to him? Jesus said, anyone who does not renounce all, he cannot be my disciple. He said, if you don't love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. How we can have idols in our life and and how we need to surrender all to him. I love what Paul says in Philippians 3 where he said, whatever I had, I counted as loss for Christ. I counted everything as loss, as dung, that I might know Christ. So church, are we fully surrendered? If if he's the boss, if he's the ultimate authority, are we living practically like that? Are Are we living fully surrendered to him? Is there any area of our life tonight that we know is in is in direct against a direct order, direct command of Jesus Christ? Would we surrender that to him? I think the third step is to rest in him. I will rest fully in him, trusting him with all of my heart. And why not? He's the Lord, right? Can we trust him? His proclamations are sure. His purposes will stand. His plans will succeed. His power is supreme. Shouldn't we rest in him? Why can't we rest in him? Why can't we trust him tonight, this week, with with what we're going to face this week? David said, rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. You know, those elites in in Israel, they were resting, do you remember, on their ivory beds. (laughs) You know, they were 
They were so comfortable in, their, in the lap of luxury, and, and yet God said that those ivory palaces would come tumbling down. Only when God's people fully rest in him and fully trust in him, walk in full surrender to him, can we truly find rest for our souls. And so, church, tonight, which step do we need to take? Have we confessed him? Are we fully surrendered to him? Are we fully resting in him? If he's the boss, if he's the ultimate authority, if he's on the throne, let's confess him, let's surrender to him, let's rest in him, amen? Let's pray.